0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast, a resource designed to form substantive disciples for the local church. I am Nick Gibson, senior pastor and lead pastor here at High Point Church. One of the things we like to do on the podcast is to highlight testimonies from our staff members so that you can get to know them a little bit better and also benefit from hearing what God's done in their lives. Today we have with us Nicole Kyle. Kyle spelled K-H-A-I-L in case you're wondering, and Nicole with two C's. She's our director of music and worship arts. And she's been on our staff since May of 2016, so she's a ripe old veteran. Yes, I
1: am.
0: So we're going to go through your life, and yeah. we also do this with, like, sermonic benefits. So, like, at certain points, you'll make spiritual conclusions and so on, and I, that's when I, sure I will, will jump in. I'll often <laughs> jump in and make pastoral comments. Okay. Um, so, as I say in the office, suddenly you were awake.
1: Suddenly I was awake. Yes, I was born in Michigan. Um right bold age of zero um i'm the fourth of four children and um i which you know has its own drama but we won't get into that now um i have parents who are faithful christians and for my whole life I that's all i ever knew them as um they came to faith later in life but um so i became a christian when i was four um Okay, so let's clarify with your parents,
0: right? So your dad grew up in Mexico.
1: Yes, my dad grew up in Mexico. He came to the States for grad school. Okay. So he did his undergrad in Mexico.
0: And is he like a, a plastics engineer? I can't remember yes. exactly his field. Yeah, okay.
1: he's a chemical engineer. Um, and he, he has his PhD in chemical engineering.
0: Okay.
1: He's very smart. Uh, and your mom? And my mom, um, she studied Spanish and social work.
0: And she, but she's Anglo.
1: Oh, yes. She's... Yep, Ang- well, her mom is from England. Okay. Um, and her mom came to the US when she was about 15. And then her dad's Irish. So my mom is like, she, well, it's now it looks more blonde, but she uh-huh. was a redhead, like the orange red kind of okay. redhead. And my dad is. A nice All right. Kid. And so they got married.
0: He went to grad school. They met around yeah, that time. Yeah, they
1: met when my mom was finishing undergrad. They met, um, and very shortly after that, they were married. And then they had, they lived in the Twin Cities at that point. And th- my parents have moved around quite a bit um, and came to fight faith kind of while they were engaged um, and when they were first married and um, had four kids. And,
0: and what's the succession? Like how much older are your siblings?
1: My s- oldest sister was six when I was born. It's basically like, oh, so it was boom, boom, six, boom, boom. four, two, zero. Okay. For the most part.
0: Perfect. Yeah. That's so nice. All right. Yeah.
1: So, um, so yeah, I became a Christian. I <laughs> prayed with my mom. I don't remember it. Um, but I know it was real. Um, I I can, like, I, as far back as I can remember, I just know that I loved Jesus and that I cared a lot about him. Um, I remember, like, driving in the car with my mom, and I we'd be listening to music, and I'd want to know, like, are these people who are singing Christians? Because I knew what it meant to be a Christian, And I knew that Christians would be in heaven someday, and that if you weren't a Christian, you wouldn't be in heaven someday. And I wanted all these people that I liked listening to their music to be in heaven with me. (laughs) Um, One time we were driving to church, and I think we were driving to church, and I said to my dad, dad, you're my dad, but you're not my real dad. And I don't remember his response, but I said, yeah, God is my real dad. You're just my dad here on earth. Um, so I just, I got it. I, it made sense to me, and I really understood the gospel, and I think it was really genuine. And obviously I understood it as much as, you know, like a four-year-old and five-year-old and six-year-old can understand it. But
0: Yeah, <clears throat> which sometimes is more than a 50-year-old understands it. Sometimes. In ways, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. So I can see how the Spirit was really, like, growing me in my faith uh, when I was... I think it was when I was maybe 10 or 12, I started <coughs> thinking, oh, I should read my Bible. I don't remember someone telling me I should, but I just remember thinking I should read my Bible. And I got a journal, like a small little notebook, and I wrote a prayer at the beginning of the notebook. And it said something like, God, would you open my eyes and help me to learn what you want to teach me? And then I would, I started reading Proverbs <laughs> and I would, write down little notes and thoughts, and then I thought I should read Revelation, and that didn't really make much sense to me, uh, but but I just see, I can see these ways that it was really genuine, and I can see the ways that God was protecting me through school and really growing me in genuine ways uh, that I'm really grateful for. I used to kind of think it was boring and uh, kind of lame, but
0: what was boring, um, Lane?
1: Just that I had that I had always been a Christian. Oh yeah. Like when when I was in college, people would come up and share their testimonies at our at our crew meetings, yeah. and like I'm never you know,
0: gonna. And I did heroin for 19 years, and right. was a prostitute in Brazil, and right. and I came to Jesus. I and, didn't have that. Yeah.
1: But the older I've gotten, the more I've heard parents say this phrase that they're praying for their kids to have a really boring testimony. Mm-hmm. And and it's not Thank boring. Thank you, Jesus. It's not actually... I receive that. Right. Yeah. But, it's, but I understand what they're saying, mm-hmm. and I'm grateful for that because I think that in a lot of ways that's true in my life, and I'm really grateful. And there, it's, there you go. It's everything. Yeah. <laughs> Sweet. Just kidding. When, uh, so I think a really big turning point in my life happened when I was 12. Uh, when my... Um, my brother at the time was 16 and my one of my sisters, her name was Karina, is Karina, um, she was 15 and they were driving home from high school and they got in a really bad car wreck. And um, I was at home when it happened after school and actually both of my parents were home. I don't know why my dad was home that day in the afternoon, but he was. And we got a phone call and I had been playing piano uh, and, and our downstairs, and my parents were in a different room and the phone rang and I always knew like okay I have to stop playing piano when the phone rings because people would get annoyed at that if I didn't and um, then I heard my mom answer the phone and I heard her kind of immediately start crying and then I heard my dad take the phone and f- kind of figure out what happened but I had no idea what was going on. And my parents came running down the stairs, and um, then my dad was like, we have to go, we have to go. And we got in a car, and I think it was probably then that they told me what happened, but um, all I really knew was that my brother and sister were in a car crash, and that my brother, he was driving, he was fine, and his best friend was in the front seat, and he was fine, but my sister was unconscious. And um, we so we drove there, and... Uh, my we parked on the other side of the road and my, I remember my dad saying you both need to stay here I'm going to go over on the other side but you stay here and my mom was like I'm not staying here I'm coming with you and then he said okay fine Nicole you're staying here and then I was like no I'm not I'm coming with you and he said no you're not um, and so they went over and I just sat in the car and kind of watched everything unfold um And I saw my brother and I saw that my sister was unconscious. I saw her get put onto a stretcher and put into the ambulance and uh, taken away. Like just a lot of things that a 12 year old does not know Mm
0: -hmm. how to
1: handle and doesn't know what to do with it and uh, I was alone in the car.
0: (laughs) So for context here, you actually got to the scene. Before the ambulance. Before the Because you live kind of rurally. Yeah, we lived out in the there.
1: country, and we got there before the ambulance got there. Because we lived actually just about five minutes away from where it happened. Oh. And the hospital was about 20 minutes from where it happened. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so we got there first. And then kind of a lot of the rest of that day, and really that whole entire summer, that happened kind of towards the end of the school year. It's just a blur for me. I don't have very many memories from that time. Um, but I do remember being at the hospital, they had this separate waiting room for my family, for the emergency, like the emergency room waiting room. And I remember sitting in there next to my brother and seeing all this blood on his hands. And I remember asking him, oh my gosh, you, you got cut, like what happened? And very vividly remember him looking at me and telling me that is not my blood, but it was my sister's. And um, then the, uh, at one point the doctor came into the room and I, rem- I have a vivid memory of asking him, is my sister gonna live? But I don't remember anything. Like I just heard fuzz when he responded. I didn't hear, I, nothing registered. And there were a lot of moments like that at the hospital where it was just like, I just didn't know what was going on. And I learned a lot later that things like that are a sign of trauma, but I didn't know at the time that that was and my sister suffered from what's called a traumatic brain injury so for a long time I I had a really hard time thinking that I went through trauma because what I went through was nothing like what she went through Um, so she was in a coma for six weeks and she was in in the hospital for the entire summer Um, and honestly I mean her recovery even from that summer was miraculous it was not at all what the, the doctors thought was going to happen um, and then looking at from then until now, I can see even that too, which I'll, I can get more into that later, but, um, it's funny because afterwards my grandma, I remember my grandma came and she drove me and my brother home and I went back home and I, um, I'm probably going to cry at some point in this, just warning. <laughs> um, I went back home and I sat at the piano and I, I started playing this old song. Well, it's not that old, but um, God is in control. Do you remember that song? Mm-hmm. It's like, um, well, I we'll love
0: it. yeah,
1: <laughs> the words are, uh, God is in control. We believe that his people will not be forsaken. God is in control. Um, something else about not being shaken. There is no other above or beside him. We know God is in control. And I just, I played that song and I, I really believed it at that moment. Um, But I really think that, like, in the years that came after that, I just, like, slowly let go of that more and more and more. Um, And it was was so slow that I didn't even realize it was happening, Mm -hmm. kind of until it was too late. And not too late, but, like, the effects became really deeply rooted.
0: Why do you think that is? Do you think that it was that her recovery was so hard, and as you struggled yeah. through it, it was...
1: Yeah, so um, I think as she... So she came home from the hospital, and th- the rubber hit the road there. It's like I was faced with it every day at that point, and I saw how difficult it was for her, how difficult it was for our whole family. Like, my brother was just really struggling with the ramifications of being the person driving, and... Um, I had been her younger sister but in a lot of ways our roles kind of changed and that's a very strange thing to go through and it was hard for both of us because she saw it happening at the same time and I as as it was happening and I wanted to treat her as normally as I could but at the same time nothing about life was the same anymore and so normal just totally changed so I was like trying to treat her the same way as my other siblings, but feeling like, well, that's not working. I, I don't know what to do. So just feeling really confused in that. Um, and then um, I think too, like when you're an adolescent and you're going through adolescence, and then when you get to high school, like it's so easy to just kind of live in your own world and think that everything that happens is your fault, good or bad. like. The good things that happen are because you're as awesome as you are. And all the bad things that happen are like, it's the end of the world because you live in your own little universe where everything is revolving around you. And and that was really true for me. And I just, I started to think the good things in life that happened were because I I did all the right things. Like I, I followed the rules and uh, and those were the rewards that God gave.
0: Some people beyond the, believe that beyond 13 years.
1: It well, yes, and I did, <laughs> but it really started there. And I, I think I just was like, if I can be in control of everything, then nothing bad will happen to my life. Nothing bad will happen to my family if I can be in control. And it really is now up to me. Um,
0: and you think that, was, that led to the you slowly losing grip on resting in that God is in control and mm-hmm. that God is our refuge?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I um, I graduated from high school and I went to college and it really, I think in a lot of ways it got solidified in college, not because of what I was taught.
0: It meaning not trusting God. Not
1: trusting God, yeah. Not because it was things that I was taught, like there were a lot of wonderful things about college. It was... I came from a really, really small town where you don't really get to pick your friends, especially if you're trying to be friends with other Christians, because there's one other Christian. And so that's your friend. Mm -hmm. And then I I came to UW-Madison and there I went to Crewe um, the first week and there was a room of hundreds of other people who were so excited to be there and who loved Jesus and who wanted to follow the Lord. And So I I really experienced great Christian community for the first time coming to Madison. and And so I really grew and flourished in a lot of ways. But I also started learning this uh, way of being able to um, put on a facade and put on this persona that really wasn't necessarily what I was feeling. And I, I just started to ignore some of the things that I had, the pain with my family. I didn't have to see my my sister every day anymore, so I didn't have to think about all the ways that she was struggling. And she, was, she had a really hard time understanding why God would ever allow this to happen and really, really struggled. And I didn't have to see that anymore. And I didn't have to watch my parents try to be counselor and caretaker and friend and parents to her anymore. I just, I could put it all outside of my mind and not mm-hmm. think about it. Um,
0: yeah, college lends itself to being the center of your own existence.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Because you sort of have these responsibilities, but all of your responsibilities are to invest in yourself. Yes. You know?
1: Right. And and it was there were good things that I was investing in, in my faith. Like mm-hmm. I, I grew so much. But I really was able to just not think about that anymore. I uh it was but it was like I said, it was also the first time that I really experienced good community. And so some of these things really came out for the first time in these conversations with people who are still my best friends today i remember telling uh, one friend for the first time sharing about this car accident and sharing about what had happened and i i think i was i don't think actually at this point i cried about it to her but i remember saying to her how i felt really really guilty because sometimes you hear about things like this happening and a parent saying they wish they could take the place of their child they wish that it had been them and not their child or friends saying that or spouses or something like that and I had heard phrases like that but that was not how I felt I didn't wish that it was me and not my sister and I felt a lot of shame about that particularly in my faith because I just was I I couldn't It was so hard to understand how that was what Jesus did. He said, I do want to take your place. And I felt like I'm supposed to love like Jesus loves, but I do not wish that was me instead of my sister. And really wrestled with just feeling of shame and like I wasn't holy enough. (laughs) I wasn't spiritual enough or whatever because I didn't want to be that much like Jesus.
0: Mm -hmm. How old were you when you put that together? Is that like a sophomore engineer?
1: Um, it would have been, I either would have been 17 or 18
0: because okay, it so was my freshman year. Early, okay. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, I, and that was hard and that stuck with me for So like for you a were
0: growing in your faith while things were getting worse. Yeah. Kind of in your, I don't know what you would call it, like your psychology of suffering or faith. Like, yeah. in a way, your faith was growing. In yeah. a way, your faith was also mm-hmm. struggling, Yeah, declining. it
1: was like some of the things, some things were really, really flourishing. And other things were almost subversely, or subversively, I don't know the word. But I was not conscious of the ways that I was being pulled further from trusting God. In really significant ways. So,
0: like, what, is that, what does that? What did that do to your faith? Like, did you did you just not feel a lot of joy in it, or did you just feel like? No, I think I was oblivious that? to it. Okay.
1: Until years later.
0: Okay. You so, felt so. You felt guilt and shame when you put it together as a freshman. Yeah. But then, but I just wouldn't to think kind about of put it. Put it aside. I
1: would just put it away. Okay. I would sometimes think about it. And I feel then, bad,
0: but there's nothing I can do about that.
1: Or like, I, I feel really bad. I don't want to feel bad. I'm just not going to think about it. Okay. I feel really. Anxious. I'm told
0: humans do that from time to time, <laughs> seek diversion.
1: Yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is what I would do, and I did it in a lot of ways. Yeah. This
0: is right at Blaise Pascal's um, in the Ponce, yeah, there's one of the Ponce's where he says, um, unable to deal with like fear, horror, and death, humans content themselves not to think about it.
1: Yeah. yeah, and that's totally what I did. I just wouldn't think about it. So I went on in college, living and really enjoying college. I went on a cruise summer mission, and that's where I met Scott. And um, we met, and then two years Spoiler later... Spoiler alert,
0: Scott is going to become the husband later in the story. That's why she refers to him as though we all know him.
1: Yes, that's right. Uh, we met, we dated long distance our junior year, we got engaged senior year, got married five days after graduation, which I would not recommend. That's what
0: Alexi and I did, too. Really? hmm
1: It's kind of miserable.
0: Yeah, I think it was for her, because I didn't do a lot of the planning.
1: yeah. Yeah. So um, that that senior year, we were engaged. It was difficult. Scott was in the really starting to experience depression, um, and he didn't really know it. But we started to realize that we were doing some premarital counseling, and uh, that's where we really started to realize that he was depressed. And so that I mean that was difficult. But again, I I wasn't living in the same city as him, so I didn't really understand how it was affecting him and. I was very young. We were both very young. Both of our families were like, are you sure you want to get married right now? And we're like, you hate us. Why do you want to stop our love? Mm-hmm. We have to. And we kind of look back now. It's the only authentic thing to do. <laughs> yeah. And now we're like, oh my gosh, our, far- our parents were right. <laughs> they know something. Uh, so we got married. And that marriage was just, in itself, was really, really hard for
0: us. So, so okay, so you guys met on a crew trip or something like that. Yeah. And so you, like, knew that you both loved Jesus. Yeah. You're both really committed Christians. You cared about college ministry. You mm-hmm. wanted to change the world and yeah. lead everybody to Jesus. Yeah. Like, what were the other, like, reasons that you decided to focus on each other?
1: I mean, sometimes I think that was really it. Like, oh, yeah. we both just kind of knew, look, not, no one's going to be perfect. Right. So if you can, you know, we really enjoyed each other, but also right. if you can kind of tolerate one another. And the gospel was your
0: greatest passion. Yeah. And,
1: and we both were there. Sharing that.
0: that was the most important thing, right?
1: Yeah. So we just didn't think there's no sense in dragging this out any longer. Like we know the most important things. Let's just get married. Why mm-hmm. wait?
0: We'll work the rest of it out. Yeah. If you love Jesus, all the rest works out. Right? Yeah. Right?
1: Yes. And in some ways, that was true, yeah. because marriage was really, really hard, and that has been constant for us. In other ways, you know, there's probably a little wisdom in maybe waiting a little bit longer than we did.
0: Yeah. So, you married somebody who was um, either, you could either say, horrifically incompatible with <laughs> person in terms of his personality and yours, mm-hmm. or you could say... You married the most complimentary person you could have imagined.
1: Yeah, and you can spin it either way. And I think when we were first married...
0: And some days it feels like one or the other. Yes. Like some days you're like, what on earth have we done? And then some days you're like, all my holes you fill in perfectly, you complete me. But for the
1: first, for sure the first six months... It was just the first one. It was just... I knew you were different from me, but I did not know that we were opposite on almost every. I thought it was
0: going to be cute.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And instead, it's miserable. And uh, we, I mean, we talk about it pretty frankly. Um, We've said this before that we think if we had dated longer or if we had lived in the same city while we were dating, we, sometimes we are like, I don't know if we would have married each other. Maybe we would have just thought this is too difficult and we would have decided otherwise.
0: Yeah, you probably would have.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So
0: it's the beauty of romantic providence. Isn't it?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we got married and uh,
0: that was. But it doesn't build a Christian conviction that like on one level romantically, you want to believe that there's the one out there. And from God's perspective in his secret will, there is is one for the most part. Right. Yeah. But on another level, you can be happy with anyone.
1: Yes, and it's a hard t- tension. And like, uh-huh. so we joined staff with crew right after we got married and worked with college students. And that's just a hard thing because we've talked a lot about dating and marriage with college students. And that's a uh-huh. hard thing to talk to college students about, too. And I mean, we would say we kind of talked about it like, you know, once we became married, then we became the one. Right. But that was the moment where, okay, we're in this.
0: Oh, yeah, that's, the, I mean, the Christian view is. You could think somebody is the one, and when, once you marry them, they, they are, are the one.
1: They sure are. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yes. So how long have you guys been married when you moved in with us?
1: We had been married for about a year.
0: It had been that long? Yeah. Okay.
1: So that can tell you how rough it was. Yeah. Because it wasn't pretty. It wasn't better.
0: Then. It wasn't all better. No, it
1: wasn't all better. When you moved in with us. Yeah. Okay,
0: so you started working with college students mm-hmm. in UW?
1: Uh, we, were, we stayed in Madison for a while while we, were, uh, while we were raising support, and then we moved to the Twin Cities. But something really important happened while we lived in Madison, which was that my sister, Karina, ended up moving to Madison and moved in with my other sister, Vanessa. But the reason that that was really important for me was because I couldn't run away from some of those things that had been really difficult any longer. Because she was in Madison. And it's not that I wanted to run away from her. It was just really difficult for me to see the pain she was going through and to be reminded of the things I had run away from.
0: Which is so modern human peoples, right? Just kind of like, I don't want all these complications in my life.
1: Right. So I'll just quit them. I'm right.
0: Leave. And you see this in how people like adjudicate their friendships. Mm-hmm. That like... I'm looking, it's kind of almost like looking for low maintenance, high capacity, high input, low output friend.
1: Yeah.
0: Right. Are you one of those? Yeah. And the people are not looking for like.
1: The relationships that you'll really work hard in and that are going to require work and growth and pain. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so you see a lot of this now that like, I, I run into younger people who just like have virtually no contact with their families. And I'm like, oh, were you, like, sexually abused by your parents or something? And they're like, no, I just don't get home. Mm -hmm. And you're like, "Um,
1: what? And that's because family is the, that's the one relationship you really can't quit. You can, but
0: you're 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 never going
1: to stop being family. You
0: can't do it morally. Yeah. Because, like, once somebody has given you life and sustained and nurtured your life up until adulthood... Like, you can't ever pay that out. Mm -hmm. And so there is this debt of gratitude. It's not like a literal debt, but there's this debt of gratitude that, like, you will forever owe your parents. Right. And that there's this debt of friendship and relating that you kind of owe your siblings.
1: Right, yeah.
0: And it's kind of rooted in your debt to your parents.
1: Yeah.
0: And there's just no way around that other than just kind of ignoring it.
1: Yeah, and I think I had seen relationships, families where they had wonderful relationships. And there were a lot of ways that I wished, you know, things could be different in my family. And I felt like, oh, my, my siblings and I could have had these great, non-anxiety inducing, wonderful relationships had this never happened.
0: And like during this time, your parents we out of the country for some of it, yes. right? Yes. the Netherlands? The reason
1: my sister moved to Madison, she had been living with my parents, but then they moved to the Netherlands for my dad's job. Mm-hmm. So she came to Madison and I, uh, I, I started to experience a lot of anxiety. So there were no parents
0: to like help mm-hmm. iron this out.
1: And my brother had moved at that point. My brother had moved out to Philadelphia. Okay. So the three girls were living in Madison and I, yeah, I started, uh, having panic attacks. Uh, I started having flashbacks of the day of the accident. um, And I would experience what my therapist called flooding. And people can can have different ideas of it. But for me, really, what it looked like is I would get these phone calls, unexpected phone calls from my family, and I would freak out because we got an unexpected phone call from my brother that this car accident had happened. Mm -hmm. So when I got unexpected phone calls, sometimes that still will affect me today even. Or if it's like late at night or something and I wasn't expecting it. Uh, the, at, at that time, I would get phone calls in the middle of the day about nothing that was a big deal. And I would get off the phone and I would crumple to the floor and cry. Because my body was reacting like a 12-year-old. My mind and my psychology, everything was going back to that day. Going back to being 12. <laughs> and so I was acting again like everything was the end of the world mm-hmm. when it wasn't.
0: And this wouldn't alarm your husband. Of listening year, I yeah. imagine.
1: So this was like, so. so He's like, hard. I knew
0: we were different, but she's broken too. Yeah.
1: And he was depressed, so we both were broken.
0: Oh, sounds fun. And, yeah. And then you came to live with us.
1: And then we came to live with you. And so I started, we had been going to pre marriage counseling. We just never really stopped. We just kept doing marriage counseling once uh-huh. we got married. And then I started seeing my therapist just with me. And I she had asked a question one day, and I just started sobbing. And she's like, I think you should come back alone sometime. This is in,
0: is this in Madison? Yeah. Who did your wedding? A crew person? Yes. Adam?
1: No, James Medina.
0: Oh, that's right. right, right yeah. Yeah. So this was in Madison? Yes. Okay.
1: This was right before we moved in with you guys. Okay. So I started going to counseling one-on-one, and that was really pivotal for me because... I started realizing just how deeply rooted these things were affecting my relationship with God. Mm-hmm. Yes, it was affecting kind of my functionality on day-to-day things like answering phone calls. Mm-hmm. But even more, I really started seeing how I, I really couldn't understand how God could be sovereign and good at the same time. It was just really, really hard for me to get. And it was really hard to understand, okay, God, I, I believe you are capable of doing all things. But sometimes you just choose not to. And that was really hard. And also, I was just kind of blind because he was doing a lot of really incredible things in my family, but I just didn't see it. And I couldn't see it, and it was mm-hmm. it was really hard for me.
0: Yeah, people don't realize because faith is so humiliated in, within the secular mindset because it's all about managing stuff. That people people don't realize that for so many things of spirit and psychology and the internal workings, all the things that make up our whole our real lives. Mm-hmm that the way you look at something and what you believe about it makes all the difference. Yeah. And when when you have a life that is like kind of weird like this, either you see good providences working in all things or you see divine failures in all things.
1: And that's what I had been seeing. Mm-hmm. I just thought... Well, I must have failed in this way, in this way, in this way, and my family must not be worthy enough for you to heal us, and you've yeah. forgotten about us, and you're not coming back, and you're just going to let us sit in this. And um, I really, I remember a really pivotal time in in a counseling session where it was like I just understood grace again and the gospel again because I had experienced. I just kept thinking I must not have been faithful enough to God for Him to be faithful to me, and. My right. Therapists are just like, that's not exactly the way the gospel works. That's not
0: that's not <laughs> Christianity what you're talking about there, yeah.
1: And it even still feels heretical sometimes to be like, God's faithfulness to me is not dependent on my faithfulness to him. Like I, I, I don't like saying that phrase or saying that sentence. I mm-hmm. struggle with that to but his faithfulness is constant and and even when I mess up he's still faithful to me yeah. and and it's not that he's just waiting to punish me and
0: to like yeah, one of the most helpful things for me was when I think it was I was like a John Piper sermon where he basically said, here's the misunderstanding. You think something you do precedes something God does. Right. And God is God's action, his promise, his action, it's always always precedes what you're doing. Yeah. You can only ever respond. Mm-hmm. And when you start thinking in those terms, God's always ahead of you.
1: Yeah, that's such a great way of looking at it because it just feels it, it for me it was kind of crippling in my faith before uh-huh. without understanding that.
0: Yeah, you're kind of like maybe I wasn't faithful enough. And you're like wait, wait let's let's do, let's go over the details again. When did Jesus die? Yes. <laughs> and you're, I mean, you're like Yeah. Okay.
1: 2000
0: years before I was born. Oh, okay. Okay, good. Right. Good. So then you being born happened after. Yes. Yeah. So then your faithfulness happened, happened after. after Jesus had already died for you. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so you're crazy. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. So it was that was pivotal. So that I was so grateful for that happening. I was like this is great. I've worked through all of this stuff. Maybe this is why support raising took as long as it did. Like I needed to work through this before we got to campus. Now I'm ready. I'm set. I understand. Like don't run away from God and don't run away from pain because it just you you're not like I was just lying to myself the whole time uh-huh. thinking I was okay when I wasn't. Uh, So then we moved, and at the time that we moved, uh, Scott's depression really plummeted. This is
0: when you moved from Madison to Minnesota. So you guys did this. You guys lived with us for 10 months, Mm -hmm. and then you finished your support raising, Yeah, and you moved to University of Minnesota. Mm
1: -hmm. And uh, Scott's depression really plummeted at that point. I think that it was the worst that it probably ever was. Around the same time, we also had started trying to have a family, and we had an ectopic pregnancy, which is just a form of a miscarriage. Mm -hmm. And so here I was (laughs) thinking, okay, I just have learned these really fundamental things about not running away from pain and allowing God to meet me in it and not believing that he doesn't care, but knowing that he does care. What am I going to do this time?
0: hmm uh-huh. It's kind of like you backed up the truck. Yeah. <laughs> You're know, like, Here you I have a delivery of pain.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and I knew, I said, okay, I ran away from this last time. I'm not going to run away from it again. But I didn't really run towards it in the right way either.
0: Uh-huh.
1: We were on a staff team, and at the same time that it's we... It's because
0: you did all the right things. But you didn't feel all the right things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We we were on which is th-
0: great because we're doing that ser- the series I'm feeling better at yes, church right now. Yes, this right?
1: is all. There's one. There's a week on bitterness, and I I'm ready for that week. Maybe 100. you could do a testimony. Yeah. So well. So speaking of bitterness, uh, there were three women on our staff team who, at the same time that we shared that we lost a baby within about three weeks, they each shared that they were pregnant, and I just was like, okay here we go. What does this look like? And what does it look like? I mean, I, I really have no option of running away because I'm going to be faced with this every day for the next eight months mm-hmm. or so. And and I really, I, I was trying to understand what it looks like to rejoice with other people and also be mourning myself. Mm-hmm. I just couldn't, I couldn't figure it
0: out. <laughs> And, in, and you did it, you smiled you right. said congratulations yeah you're like oh you look so you're looking great but
1: internally I was just so maybe they'll die bitter. <laughs> yeah. like I yeah. was I I was so bitter i I was cold there was one woman on the staff team in particular and she totally picked up on it and was really kind to not I mean we talked about it later but I just I didn't want to talk to her she had a really rough pregnancy was really sick and would kind of complain about it, and I would just sit there kind of seething, like, are you really gonna complain about this to me? Like, oh, you got a little
0: morning sickness, that's yeah. great, yeah.
1: I just, I, I almost died. Yeah, <laughs> right, and I, I just, I was so bitter. I had other friends that I stopped following them on social media because I just couldn't bear looking at this joy that they were experiencing when I wasn't, and all of these old lies just came back at me like these arrows, like, yeah, you probably weren't faithful enough to deserve a child. Well, you guys wouldn't be good parents, so that's why God took this baby away because you're not ready, or you're not like all of these things. And I was in counseling again this time in the Twin Cities, working through it. But I just, I, I recognized some of those things, but I just couldn't get rid of the bitterness. And I think the biggest thing is I just stopped, slowly stopped responding to God when He would show me my sin I just wouldn't I wouldn't repent and i be I grew really calloused and really bitter and we came back to Madison uh I think we wanted I think we specifically came back to talk to you and Alexi and I don't know if it was just about this but I knew I wanted to talk to her about this Mm -hmm. and I knew it was crippling me but I just didn't know what to do and we were at a coffee shop and she um she said she took me to the story of David, and when David and Bathsheba they had a a baby that was sick, and um, this was their first baby, right, mm-hmm. from their adultery. Right. Yes, and when the baby is sick, David's like crying, and he's so stricken, and he's so uh, grieved, and his servants are like, "Oh my gosh, this guy's going crazy." And then when the baby finally dies, they're so afraid to tell him because they're like, what is he going to do now?
0: Right. He's going to get crazier. Yeah. He's going to like kill us or something. (laughs) Well, if he's going to die, you're going to die. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And and that's not what happens. He realizes something's up and he realizes the baby's died, hasn't he? And he gets up. David gets up and he has something to eat and to drink. And I think he... Maybe bathes. Yes, yeah, as he washes his, yeah.
0: himself and puts oil on
1: And then he goes on. And um, I just, I can remember so much sitting in that conversation with Lexi where she was like, there's a time to grieve and then there's a time to move on. And, and there, his, his sons are asking him like, what happened? And he said to them, right. that baby will not return to me, but I will go to him. And that moment for me was this moment of realizing how I had just sat in this self-pity and this bitterness. And that wasn't going to change what happened. Uh-huh. And, uh, and I started to see how I had just been idolizing the idea of motherhood and and uh, I had kind of gotten desperate and was like if we can just get pregnant soon Then it'll right the wrong that happened because that that'll replace that baby or something like all these thoughts that. And even really... just the feeling
0: that you're you're of your own fertility of just like that you're able to have a child and that you're normal and yeah healthy and
1: right all of these dreams that I'd had just had been slipping through my fingers and I just in that moment with Lexi saw how I was not trusting God and how I was gripping so tightly to these things, but it wasn't going to make me feel any better. Uh-huh. It's, I've heard this about bitterness in terms of not forgiving other people, that bitterness is the poison you drink yourself. Uh-huh. But this was true even in this situation. It's not like somebody else had wronged me, and I was bitter towards them, but I was bitter towards God. Uh-huh. And it was slowly ruining me. And, yeah. and it wasn't making me feel any better. <clears throat> and that was a huge turning point for me insane
0: can I try to like I want to try to get to work because yeah. I think sometimes people experience what you're experiencing that like before the way you're talking about it was like I just had these feelings of being upset mm-hmm. and I knew they were not good and so I was like I'm not going along with that mm-hmm. but like they were all there mm-hmm. but it sounds like what you're saying is is that underneath mm-hmm. that feeling was another thing that you were accepting that was was really the soil that this other thing was growing out. Of, that the, that it was your idolatry of motherhood. Oh yes, your, and yeah. that yeah. kind of had just laid there. Mm-hmm. And once you got the spade down that deep, yeah, you were able to actually get really some get, release. Yes,
1: yes. And you talked, you preached about this just this past Sunday about how sometimes empathy and feeling bad for people can prevent us from. Really inviting them towards courage and mm-hmm. even ourselves being courageous. But that was a moment where I saw Lexi do that. she She was so compassionate with me in the process and had cried with me too. yeah, but was not afraid to say, "You need to look towards Jesus now."
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And you need to get up and eat something mm-hmm. <laughs> and drink and and move forward. Yeah, And slowly, I started to see, the calluses just peel away. And my being able to trust God again and feeling conviction again. Like, I just really hadn't felt conviction mm-hmm. in a year. That was a, a year-long bitterness. Um,
0: yeah. Alexi, Alexi has been through that herself. For her, it was work. Yeah. When she worked at Abbott Laboratories, she had this period of time where she just closed in on herself and closed in on herself and closed in on herself. And it took one of our friends to just be like, because I told her you gotta let it go. And and one of our friends, an African-American, a Haitian friend, yeah. held her hands in a Einstein's bagels mm. and just was like, Alexi, you gotta let this go. Yeah. <laughs> and he said it like 46 times. Yeah. <laughs> and then she mm-hmm. I mean, that really yeah. led, like, that day. And, and then she like yeah. really started it. And she she's been there before. She knows what yeah. that feels like of kind of like right. you just get lost in
1: yeah. this. And you you just live in Forest. your own world.
0: And once it's kind of like the uh, it's kind of like Mark Wood in Lord of the Rings. You get off the path in that woods.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It is so hard to find the path again. Yeah. Of the right way.
1: Right. Yeah. So I I was I remember one day being in our kitchen and feeling this conviction that I needed to apologize to Scott, and and feeling this sense of conviction, but also the sense of joy, like yeah. oh my gosh, there's the Holy Spirit again.
0: Yeah. I can feel him. My conscience is working. Yeah.
1: And not only that, I'm going to respond mm-hmm. in what he's asking me to do. And and that was really, really pivotal. So then we, we stayed in the Twin Cities for a while, and eventually we got to a point where we knew, all right, we'll probably pursue adoption. We had still been trying to get pregnant, but hadn't gotten pregnant. and We also started experiencing changes in, in what we thought we would do with our job. And so... Around that time, we decided that we would leave staff with crew. We had no idea what would happen later. And then, two days after we made the decision ourselves, I got, I knew that the job here was going to be opening mm-hmm. for the worship director position.
0: From me? Or did you? Yeah, yeah, from me. I your, told
1: you. you. You texted me. <clears throat> and that, in a lot of ways, felt like affirmation from God, too. Like, okay making a right decision because
0: uh-huh. we talked about this a couple years before that right mm-hmm. and but you guys were doing the crew thing and I was yeah like, great
1: we're like we don't feel called off staff at all uh-huh. and then at that point we did
0: uh-huh. um,
1: so then we came to Madison and about a year ago we moved here and we we knew once we moved we would start the adoption process and then again like uh, two women at the office, actually, three women at the church, and two of my closest friends, all within like two months, were like, Hey, I'm pregnant. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Okay, it's like a do over. <laughs> How often do you get that in life that you mm-hmm. get to do over a situation? But I felt like I actually knew that time what it meant to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Because
0: you had your sad moments.
1: I did. Oh, yeah. I definitely did. Yeah. I And I told, I told Jill this recently, but the day that she told me that she was pregnant, I covered my face and it looked like it was out of excitement, but it was like, oh my gosh, hold it together. Don't cry. <laughs> and I, I had another moment thinking, I'm going to watch, she's right across from my office. I'm going to watch her get more and more pregnant every month. And I didn't. At that point, I was really afraid mm-hmm. that the same thing would happen—that I would just grow really bitter. But saw how God had grown me and taught me, and by His grace alone, be able to really be excited for these girls in my life who were pregnant, mm-hmm. and also still grieve that that wasn't going to happen for me. Mm-hmm. And but also be excited about adoption all at once.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> um, which was just a confusing, a really confusing feeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, yeah.
0: So the adoption process, super long, home studies, and yes. thousands of dollars, and yes, so forth.
1: Yeah, so we started that process a few months after we moved. To it's a lot process. longer
0: than conceiving.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Which was also, like, we had to wrestle with some of those things, too. I remember one time driving and just praying, like, God... This is so unfair. We're missionaries, and adoption is thirty-five thousand dollars.
0: Right. Other people are conceiving children for zero dollars <laughs> yeah. and enjoying it. Yeah, and we're thirteen-year-olds
1: are getting pregnant, <laughs> right. and they don't have to go through references and background checks and these no. things. And so, I mean, we had to wrestle through that a good bit. And so, for the record,
0: I think that kind of cost for adoption is insane. And I think it's actually a huge social problem, and there's been some documentary work and like people trying to shine a light on this, and it's it's horrific mm-hmm. that few, that families are are put through that kind of expense when they want to raise a child, and children are relatively expensive. Mm-hmm. It's just it's and it also it's so classist because right
1: yeah so totally. most
0: people cannot do Afford. that, mm-hmm. and um, you know you wonder why African American families aren't adopting African-American kids. And one of the reasons more of that probably isn't happening is because, like, it's Mm $35,000, right? So it's been really neat to see the church come around people and, like, I've seen, you know, that you've seen this in, like, families giving yeah. thousands of yes. dollars to other families. We've
1: had so many people who just, without us even asking, we planned to ask and do fundraisers, but even right. without that, people saying, we want to be a part of this. Yeah. We want to help you. We had some people say, hey, when you do your second adoption, we want to help you pay for that one. Like, we just, people have been so gracious. And, and we kind of felt like, all right, God, we trust you. Because... We're not getting pregnant <laughs> and we feel strongly about adoption and we're excited for it. We had wanted to adopt before all of this struggling mm-hmm. with pregnancy anyway. Right. And so we we just felt really strongly that if God was gonna lead us to that, He was gonna provide the finances. Yeah. And really saw that in the process too.
0: Yeah, so we've walked through this. There's been several months where it's like these two women in particular that we you see every single day mm-hmm. are getting more pregnant. We're praying for them praying mm-hmm. for your adoption you get through the whole process very recently it was like okay we finished everything you could get a child at any moment
1: yep we sent in all of our paperwork and we were just waiting then at that point for a birth moment to us. Mm-hmm. and then i had a dream uh kind of out of the blue kind of not out of the blue but i had a dream about a baby
0: were you guys at our house the night before that I
1: don't remember. By the
0: way, after I remember. Maybe.
1: I don't remember. But we we had a dream that you and Lexi had another baby and um, you said we want you to have this baby. And in the dream I heard a voice, I didn't see a face, but I heard a voice say, I, I was staring at the baby and I heard a voice say, Her name is Yvette. And when I looked up the name later, the name I mean it's just a different form of Eve and it means living one. Mm-hmm. And I felt really strongly that I should pray for a pregnancy. And really, that was a huge step of faith for me because, in a lot of ways, I had one of the long, deep rooted things I had struggled with since being 12 was just expecting hard things from life and not expecting the blessings from God, but expecting him to bring me through trials.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I had learned about his faithfulness and I, I, I had known that I could trust that now, but just, just really expected
0: More punches are coming. Yes, more yeah. punches
1: are coming and I will help you get through them, but right. they're coming.
0: But there's going to be more punches, right? And so very little just great is going to happen. Yes. There's not going to be any breaks. Yeah. It's going to be fight all the way. All so the way. get ready. Get ready. Which makes you tough.
1: Yes. And we had experienced blessing from that too. Like I can't tell you how many students, once Scott shared that he was going through the depression, reached out to him and how, I mean, a guy came to faith because of their conversation about Mm -hmm. depression. Like, So I saw, okay, God will use this and he will Mm -hmm. give purpose, but it's going to be hard. Mm -hmm. So it was a huge step of faith for me to pray that he would give us a pregnancy. And I, I, I came in this room, actually, that we're recording this podcast in, and was praying for that. And it felt terrified because I'm like, what if he doesn't do it? And what if I'm disappointed again and I don't want to, I don't want to experience that, but just felt like I should pray for that. So I asked a, a bunch of really close girlfriends to pray with me for a week, um, that we would get pregnant. And then it was about two weeks after that dream, I went to bed again and had another dream that, I had taken a pregnancy test and it was positive. So that next morning, I felt like, okay, I should take this test. And it was positive. And so now we're pregnant. Wait, you're pregnant? <laughs> yeah. What? You knew that. Yeah. yeah. That's
0: Which, ex- that's kind of exciting.
1: <laughs> it's a little exciting. Yeah. And it, even in that, it's been hard because when we were telling people, we're going to do adoption, we had so many people saying, Oh, just wait. You're going to get pregnant. And I was I really resented those comments mm-hmm. because like that's not really a sensitive thing to say to someone who has struggled with this, even if you know that that has happened a lot. Right. Which it does happen <clears throat> a lot. Yeah. It, just maybe don't say it to the person next time. Yeah. Um and because I really was trying really hard to let go of that and think what if we never get pregnant? I want to not resent God and be bitter in that for the rest of my life
0: Mm -hmm. Um, yeah it's a very fine line between knowing when to accept something and to accept a a bitter providence Mm -hmm. and that somehow becoming a kind of unbelief about because like the psalms are a great example of this like just last week psalms psalm 11 you know David is like I take refuge in God the upright will see his face and he has no necessary belief in his absolute deliverance. You know, he, he knows he could die, right? right? And yet, there's all these other places where he says he talks about God temporally saving and lifting up and like protecting you and like delivering you over your enemies. And he'd experienced all those things. Mm-hmm. And it just they, there's no book of the Bible that kind of like, it's like wouldn't it be great? It's like the book of paradoxes, <laughs> right? God is sovereign yeah. and you are free and responsible. Yeah. Um, God blesses in the present. And God allows and offers bitter providences for our transformation, for his own glory. And, like, mm-hmm. there is no place where those get worked out, mm-hmm. right? I imagine the Bible would be quite a lot longer if there was one of those books. <laughs> and so, yeah, we have these deals where we're like, this is never going to... Should I let it... Like, I've, I've talked with staff about whether or not I should get a PhD, mm-hmm. right? Something I kind of dreamed about when I was younger. I realized that I didn't need it to do what I needed to do. Um, but I, there's been some more talk with friends recently about it and like I'm kind of in this place where I'm just kind of like you know do you put something to bed or do you not right, like,
1: right. and that is totally how we felt about this we felt like yeah. we got to a point where we had to say
0: what is faith? yeah <laughs>
1: right. <laughs> and it felt hard either way because it's like I, it's not that I doubt God's ability and what he could do and that he could give us a, a child through pregnancy Right. but I also am going to trust him no matter right and sometimes you have like in order to get to that point sometimes you you have to let it just completely go and it's hard to to balance that and still maintaining faith mm-hmm. which i so i felt like in god asking me to pray it was him asking me to continue to have faith in him and which like i was already pregnant when i had that dream i just didn't even know it right. <laughs> but i felt like i learned about having faith in him, and also trusting that he is a good father. That's been a hard thing for me to trust God. Yeah,
0: which means God asking you to pray was entirely pedagogical.
1: It had nothing to do with if you pray, I'll give you a then baby. Then I'll give you a baby. No. You were already I pregnant. I was already going right? to have that
0: He just wanted you to pray yeah, so before could, you found out because yeah, <laughs> you were pregnant. Right,
1: which is such an, to me, I see that. I'm like, what a like, an intentional, intimate gift that he wanted me to be able to experience that and grow my faith in Him, mm-hmm. that was really just for me. Yeah, <laughs> and that I'm so grateful for
0: that. And everyone, you'll share with the rest of your yes. life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which no, which no doubt will be a really important for other people to hear. You know. Yeah. Okay, so it's let's so bring it home because we're yeah. at the present. Mm-hmm. So, what are some of if if your story is a testament, right? What would people? What might people learn about God if they read it?
1: Yeah, I think of a couple of things. One, I learned not to run away from God in the midst of my pain, because that's all I wanted to do. I just wanted to run away and not face, and not grapple with the things that were really hard for me. Mm-hmm. But instead like to understand he can handle it <laughs>
0: Right.
1: he can handle when I don't understand these different things about his character and he wants me to bring it to him um, yeah I've learned about not staying in bitterness and so on kind of the flip side facing your pain but not living in it forever and knowing uh-huh. that there is a time to grieve and mourn and then there is a time to move on and and uh, and that it is it is good to do that. Mm. Sometimes it's hard for people who've gone through trauma and pain to do that because you think that you are denying what happened. I, I wrestled with that. I did therapy for post-traumatic stress disorder, and that was a, a hard thing that took me a while to understand that just because I could move on from pain doesn't mean that I'm saying it never happened. But you can move on from it, mm. even though it did happen.
0: Yeah.
1: And... Uh, and I, I learned a lot about watching Jesus through pain. I've, I've looked to his example in the Garden of Gethsemane a lot, that he didn't run away from his pain, he brought it to God, he prayed, and he told him, if there's any other way, would you take this cup from me? But that's where he stopped, and he said, but not my will, but yours. And I've, I've also learned how God gives purpose to our pain, and that through sorrow and through suffering, he he brings us to joy, and I think the crucifixion is the greatest example of that. It's the ultimate suffering for the ultimate outcome.
0: Yeah, I think that if you believe in the sovereignty of God, there's a there's a there's a sense in which, and it would take a while to work this out philosophically, but just mm-hmm. pastorally speaking, there's a sense in which there is never any other way. Mm-hmm. If it, in God's providence. He is moving things in a certain way yeah. for many, maybe many millions of even reasons that we don't know for the goods that he seeks and for the end that he desires. There is no other way. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't mean you can't pray. It doesn't mean that God doesn't act and like move things. But it, what it means is that just as Jesus said, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. But he, I mean, he knew right. there wasn't. Right. And so he moved forward, and I think that.
1: Yeah.
0: I, th- I think that, like all the way along, we need to recognize that when we see things, all we can see is how many other ways there are. <laughs> right. For, mm-hmm. for your sister, just he didn't crash. Right. This is simple. Right. Right. There's lots of other ways this could go down. Right. right. And yet, mm-hmm. I mean, we just don't know. We have no mm-hmm. idea of eventualities of anything. Totally. And so we don't know how, A, pain can be useful. Mm-hmm. We also don't know how release can be harmful. Mm-hmm. And, right. and because human beings are so wicked, or, I mean, so self-centered, so self-involved, yeah. so unwilling to see the truth, pain, like Lewis said, is God's megaphone to a deaf world. It, it Our deafness is so profound that without the volume of pain, yeah. there is our damnation is so secure. Mm-hmm. And... That is a very bitter thing to accept and a bitter providence to embrace.
1: But I think when you do, you experience more joy than you knew you could. I was reading a book when I was in counseling the first time and it said, Until you see that the cup of sorrow is the cup of joy, you will never drink it. And I saw that in my life, that until I walked through it and trusted God through it, I was in misery, both cases. Uh-huh. Whether it was dealing with my sister or dealing with our baby, in both cases, it, the, I was in misery beforehand until I walked through.
0: Yeah. Do you feel like part of it is that when you when you neglect the cup of misery, right, that you can only do that by like deadening mm-hmm. your being? Numbing,
1: numbing something. Yeah.
0: And in that sense you you begin to live like an anesthetized person yes And so you can't feel joy, you can't right you can't like if you say I won't feel pain then you're the only upset. way you can do it is anesthetize all of your capacity to feel yeah and so you lose yeah all of it yep. And so you can still kind of like drug yourself up mm-hmm. you can still create effects. Um, you could still use like drink and sex and food and like these very visceral things mm-hmm. that aren't linked soulishly to who you are. Yeah. You can utilize them to feel something. Mm-hmm. But the deeper, soulish, divine, spiritual, human, psychological, rooted mm-hmm. life of mind and heart and will flourishing, right? Mm. That all just kind of deadens. Yeah. And so if, and then when it reawakens, oftentimes... Conscience reawakens. Yeah. Which is painful, but it mm-hmm. like it lets you know that you're alive.
1: Yeah, and I think that was I learned to find comfort in that. Mm-hmm. I learned to find comfort in God's sovereignty because I knew he could give purpose to my pain and he could make it into something really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Even if in the midst of it there wasn't something beautiful about it. Death is death. Right. But he could give purpose and beauty to it that yeah. I could walk through.
0: Yeah, and and that's where like you, and you can you can feel so much, right? And mm-hmm. like I know for my own for my own life, I went through a period of time where things were so just bad, just negative and broken, out of control, and so on. That like I shut it all down, mm-hmm. and it has taken me my whole life since then right. just to start mm-hmm. to open it back up again.
1: Yeah,
0: you know. Um, but like all the great, all the great, deeply felt realities of life real joy, real worship and adoring mm. of God's majesty. And yeah. even you can even see in, in your mind's eye certain things, but they won't do anything inside of you if you shut it all down. Right. You can have theological insight. Technically, you can learn the books. You can read the systematic theology. You can even have insights into the scriptures. Yeah. And you'll get a little bit of a pop off of it. But you won't.
1: You won't have it. the deep affections for God.
0: Yeah. And I would argue, tell me if you heard this, I would argue that this is a cancer in our society, that our our culture is full of these shallow, like the pleasure of the little brain pleasure ticks of like watching a show, Mm -hmm. eating ice cream clicking on something in social media, right. playing a three-minute game where you click on things and you yeah. make progress and you get the emotional payoff for it.
1: Which we both like to do.
0: Right. <laughs> Super short-lived relationships yeah, that are think, like infatuation, explosion, implosion.
1: I think you can see it. I mean, it's kind of the same thing that we were talking about before with Scott and me and our marriage. Mm-hmm. That we it was the commitment and walking through the really difficult things that allowed us to now experience this deeper joy that we have. But if you just don't allow yourself to do that, or the minute it gets hard you just leave and you quit, you won't get to experience that deep joy.
0: Okay, two final lessons from you. One, walking with someone through infertility. Two, walking with someone through depression. Yeah. So walking with someone through infertility, don't say as soon as you have an adoption you'll get pregnant. Don't say
1: that. (laughs) Right? Anything else? Um... But don't be afraid to call them out of their sin, right? In a really kind way. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Don't be afraid to do that.
0: Yeah, don't rush. They to do need the but...
1: they need the close friends to be able to do that, to be brave to do that. Okay. Um, yeah, that's... for infertility, that's what I would say. Yeah,
0: yeah. walking with someone through depression.
1: That honestly could be an entire other podcast Okay. <laughs> and maybe would be helpful for a lot of people. Okay. Um, maybe we'll
0: do two guests. Like we'll get somebody who like counts as people with depression and then yeah. you and we can all blah, blah, blah about it. Yeah. Helpfully.
1: Yeah. Because I do think Scott and I have learned a lot um, and I, I would love to talk a lot more about it. Okay. I'm trying to like think of something helpful right yeah. now. Yeah. What are like
0: two, like don't give up.
1: Oh, don't give up. Yes. Don't give up. Because especially if you are the person loving someone with depression, mm-hmm. they they in a lot of ways, whether they mean to or want to, just sometimes don't have the capacity to have hope. But the times where I could say to Scott, hey, it's okay, I have the faith for you right now. I have the hope for you right now. I know that was really helpful for him, that at least we're not both in despair right now. And we've seen God's faithfulness. And we've seen the like the change and like going back into it and coming out like we've Mm -hmm. seen a lot of the of the ups and downs don't give up don't lose faith that god sees you because he does see that person i guess i don't know if i'm talking to the depressed person or the friend but (laughs) yeah
0: yeah yeah all right well i think that's all we have time for yeah i think 15 minutes ago was all we had time (laughs) probably so thanks for doing this nicole (laughs) we're really glad to hear and we know there's Mm -hmm. so much to everybody's story that doesn't get included yeah but um And congratulations that you are with child. With child. So if there's anything Nicole doesn't, does that you don't like, just remember
1: (laughs) email nick at highpointchurch.org.
0: Yeah, and that her body is making the most complicated thing on earth. (laughs) So back off. All right, we'll see you soon.